people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to episode four of the Toxic Avengers podcast. Thanks for joining. For our fourth episode, I spoke with Jose Bravo, executive director of the Just Transition Alliance and national coordinator of the Campaign for Healthier Solutions. For the past three decades, Jose has spent his life working to improve the health and lives of communities across the country and around the world, using every available tool of advocacy, including door-to-door education, building diverse coalitions, corporate-focused consumer campaigns, legislation, negotiation, litigation, and direct action. During our conversation, we discussed the work of the Campaign for Healthier Solutions to compel dollar stores to eliminate the use of toxic chemicals in their products and provide customers with healthier, locally grown food options, as well as the genesis and early campaigns of the Just Transition Alliance. Jose also talked about his childhood growing up in and around San Diego, his early years of activism and organizing, and joining the Environmental Health Coalition to work on their Toxic Free Neighborhoods project, leading to his invitation to the first National People of Color Environmental Leadership Summit in Washington, D.C. in October 1991. It was a great privilege to speak with Jose Bravo about his life and work, It is impossible to capture even a fraction of what he has done in one conversation, and I hope we'll be able to capture more of his story in a part two. Here is our conversation, recorded in August. Well, let's start out actually with just what you're working on, you know, basically right now, these days. Yeah, currently right now, and then we can go back to the beginning and circle around. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for inviting me on this podcast. It's It's really nice to be on. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you about what I'm doing from two fronts. One is the Just Transition Alliance, which I'm the executive director on, of, and then the other is the Campaign for Healthier Solutions, also known as the Dollar Store Campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, so the things that we're working on, I'll start with the Campaign for Healthier Solutions. With the Dollar Store Campaigns, our goal have always been to, has always been to bring dollar stores into a process where they start paying attention to the chemicals in their products. Um, our goal is to get them to adopt comprehensive chemical policy and to put together uh, a restricted substance list that they could focus on and move forward to removing from products. You know, this is not, like I've said to them before, it's not about boycotting units, it's not about, you know, boycotting dollar stores it's about getting them to be good neighbors and you know getting them to be um, good in regards to uh, health and the environmental implications from some other products Um, so given that you know we're focusing on four main uh, dollar stores Uh, one is dollar general uh, the other one is dollar tree and then we have 
family dollar which dollar tree and family dollar are both one in the same but they still kept they still keep two separate logos and 99 cents only stores which is mostly out in california nevada arizona and texas um, between them you know there's over 40,000 individual stores and they make above you know 43 to 44 billion dollars a year you know i'm going to give you some stats like that because i think it's important just to set the understanding of what we're up against there are also in the top 25 food retailers in the country a lot of people think well, you know dollar stores how could they be in the top 25 food retailers i think one of them uh, dollar tree is 18 and dollar general is 21. Um, I, or I could have them backwards, but it's yeah. it's up there within the 25 uh, largest food retailers in the country. Why? Um, well, because of where they're cited, of you know where they choose to set up operations. You know they use a lot of the same indicators that heavy industry uses: people of color, low income, little to no political clout. Um, you know zoning. Um, that that allows you know the mixed residential industrial use other things like that and then they also use high wick and snap recipient areas so you know that's how they literally target communities and that's how industry industry uses all of those except for the high wick and snap yeah. <laughs> um, so you know they make a lot of money and for us it was a, a process where we had seen other markets campaigns taking on Walgreens, Walmart, you know, Home Depot, and many other other major retailers, but nobody was really talking about the dollar stores, right? And why the dollar stores? Well, you know, they're very prevalent, like I said, in our communities. The other pieces is, you know, we are also talking about intentionally food-deprived areas. Um, mm -hmm. Some, some folks might call those um, food deserts, but I live out here close to the desert and the desert's beautiful. And, you know, the desert is, is unnatural. And what happens in dollar stores and what happens with the placing of dollar stores to me is unnatural. Um, so we will call them <laughs> intentionally food deprived areas. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. We've done testing of products and we found different chemicals in their products everything from phthalates to PFAS chemicals to lead, you know, some some other, I mean, literally, you know, flame retardants, brominated flame retardants, a bunch of other types of chemicals. And why we chose to focus on dollar stores as well is the fact that in many of our communities, we already have a disproportionate impact. That means that either these chemicals are made, are used, or are finally disposed of in our communities, right? And so through toxic waste dumps and other things, or incinerators or other things of that nature. So our relationship to the chemical exposure goes further than just, you know, the, the product exposure. And for us, it seems like it's an easy lift for these companies to go upstream to their suppliers and say, hey, you know, no child deserves to have costume jewelry that has, you know, five, six thousand parts of lead in it. No child, you know, um, deserves that. So 
we've been getting them to come around. It's been about six years. And part of what we've been doing as of late is that Dollar Tree is probably um, leading the pack of what's called the discount retail sector. Mm -hmm. Um, They had put together a list of 17 chemicals that they were going to get removed from products I'll, and and here's the here's the fine line the, the the fine text the the first products that they wanted to target are um, private label so that means you know their products dollar trees products family dollars products so they wanted to focus on 17 chemicals by the end of 2020. They succeeded in, in removing those 17 chemicals. Some of those 17 chemicals are included in the chemical list that concerns us. So that's a good thing. Now, you know, we've, we're in communication with them. They've joined the Chemical Footprint Project. You know, they, you know they've joined places that would help them create a good chemical policy moving forward. And they actually are pretty good at working on that. Um, Dollar General, you know, that's a different story a little bit. I think we started working with them early on, and they had put together a list of eight chemicals in two product categories, um, primarily personal care items and or products, household cleaning products. So now we're pushing them to expand the list of restricted substance list. And... You know, I think we have we're we're still in negotiations around that, but you know we've come a long way. You know, this year's the retailer report card uh, that came out that talks about how they're doing on chemicals and and processes. The dollar stores were the most improved sector. That's a that's a good thing, you know, um, because it's high time <laughs> that they yeah. start doing something. So those are some of the things that we're doing on the campaign for healthier solutions. We're a very successful campaign. You know, we use testing, we use, you know, expertise from, you know, organizations, mainstream organizations, laboratories, scientists, doctors, uh, uh, you know, whatever we can get a hold of in regards to helping us, I think we move these issues forward together. So it's, it's important to be connected in that way. Have you been able to play them off against each other or try and, yeah. Yeah. So I'll go through a little bit of strategy. And first of all, what we did is when we started out in 2015, February 4th, when we wrote the letter to the CEOs of these institutions, but what we started out by doing is educating ourselves. So we tested 164 products. We found that 81% of those products had at least one chemical of concern and 47% of those products had at least two chemicals of concern. So when I'm talking about chemicals of concern or chemicals that, you know, we, we could, and, and, and could be linked to cancer, could be linked to learning disabilities, you know, all endocrine disrupting, you know, all the whole gamut of things, right? So those, that's what literally constitutes a, a chemical of concern for us so nothing we didn't hear anything we, we we did the testing we wrote the letters and we didn't hear anything and we waited and we waited so then we started taking direct action um, we would do you know direct action outside of stores we took uh, you know community members and and literally you know had them put messaging together to say hey you know 
you need to do something in regards to our health. We don't, we are really concerned about the chemicals in your products. I mean, a lot of things, profits um, or people before profits, those kinds of things, right? Right. Um, so it didn't work. So then <laughs> we still didn't get it. And you, you were targeting all four at the same time? Yeah. Yeah, we yeah, okay. were targeting all four at the same time. We would we were trying to figure out see who would bite first. Then we decided to go after their image. We started a media campaign. We leveraged some very very good national media. You know, we leveraged about 1.3 1.4 million dollars worth of media. You know, it became pre- pretty prevalent in in the news in the news and in other media types of uh, outlets. So. Still, it was like they would respond to the media and they would say, you know, we went to the headquarters in Goodlessville, Tennessee, where Dollar General has its headquarters. And one of the CEOs, or not the CEO, but one of the vice presidents came out and started telling the media person that, you know, our sample size is too small. They came back to me, they interviewed me, and they said, so what do you think about them responding that the sample size is too small? I said, they're damn lucky. Um, they're damn lucky that our sample size is too small because if we found what we found in 164 products you can imagine if we tested a good amount of those 5,000 products per store Um, so shaming them shaming them into a process we we got about 155,000 signatures to a petition you know advocating for for us to meet to that for them to develop some common chemical policy, you know, to develop a restricted substance list and, and those kinds of things. And it was still very hit and miss. So here comes the charm. Um, or, or I guess the, the straw that broke the camel's back on. In this case, we reached out to our friends at Clean and Healthy New York, um, Kathy Curtis and, and the folk back then. And, and they said, hey, you know, because we had heard rumblings that the state of New York had tens of millions. I think it, it was like 65 million, but I can't, I can't tell you for sure, yeah. uh, of dollars uh, in shares in dollar stores. <laughs> and okay, so um, uh. we, uh, Kathy was gracious enough to get us a meeting with the state comptroller's office. And we talked about the campaign and we said, hey, you know, here's the whole, you know, everything of what we have of information, what we want. It's not, we don't want to close them, you know, and you all have a big investment in dollar stores. So would you consider putting forth uh, a shareholder resolution or some kind of shareholder activism? And I guess we were talking to the right people because they said, yeah, you know, we've done this in the past with, with you know, slave labor and other things that mm-hmm. uh, some some of these corporations have, have bought products that uh, use slave labor and stuff. So I said, oh, great, you know. So they wrote a letter, and uh, they cited the report. They cited us, and then lo and behold, like a week later, um, they called. Oh, and I should say that in the letter, um, I think the language included moving forward with the. Uh, with the resolution tied to executive salary. Get them where they live. I, I kind of chuckle at it now. But, okay. 
that's what it took. So here they go. You know, they're talking to us. You know, they're coming. Some of them coming, kicking and screaming. Others are saying, okay, you know, we're willing to consider, you know, moving forward. You know, this kind of stuff. You know, three years down the line, two and a half years, actually, from from where we're at now, you know, they're they're pretty well on their way in regards Mm. to putting together chemical policy, targeting the correct chemicals, you know, moving into, I mean, you know, the, within the last two months, three months, um, Dollar Tree has given us like monumental news. They basically said to us, look, we're going to phase out phthalate chemicals in all of our products by the end of 2021. That was wow. Okay. And they said, "It, it doesn't stop there. By the end of 2022, we're going to phase out PFAS chemicals in all of our products. So these are their their brand products. No, these are all of their products. Oh, everything in yeah. the store. So in a call, I was like thinking, you know, how how can I um, get them to tell us when they say their products, what products? So I asked them point blank. I asked the executives point blank. I said, you know, hey, um, is it all products or just your private label and um, they said no it's all of our products products so that is monumental right because yeah, that's you can imagine how many products they deal with yeah so for us it's a it's a very good win we take credit for that <laughs> yeah. you know because we've been very persistent at the same time you know we we applaud them for taking that that large step in the right direction so and so which which store was that sorry that was dollar tree family dollar mm-hmm. right okay so and they that... have about seventeen thousand stores or something like that and, you know we're talking about um businesses that have in essence more stores than mcdonald's does um you know more it's like really huge amounts yeah you know, in some communities, I you know, I go here, I live in San Diego, California. In some communities, I go down into Imperial Valley, and I see, like, four or five different dollar stores in a very, very small community, right? And no supermarket. <laughs> really? Yeah. Zero Just supermarket. all the foods at the dollar stores. Yeah. That's what makes them rank up in the top 25 food retailers in the country. Yeah. That's the niche they cover. You know, again, historically in communities of color, we do not have um, supermarkets. We rely on mom and pop operations. We rely on bodegas, other things like that, but and dollar stores for food. And if we want to buy food, we have to leave our community and go into uh, either a white or middle-class community and shop for food. Will that announcement, are they going to announce that publicly? Are they going to Oh, make they've a, already announced it. Yeah, we, no, they did. we've already announced it. That's why. Okay. Yeah, no. By the time this podcast airs, um, yeah, it'll be history, but good history. That's great. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah. And that can hopefully be used to move the others, I assume. that's the. Yeah, so that's, I think your original question was, how do we play them off each other? So now the negotiations with Dollar General, who's kind of stalled the process a little bit, is going to be, look, we want you to be a leader, not a laggard. So this is what the leading group is doing. So 
it's time for you to catch up. So that's, I mean, that's, it's real results because that's going to reduce meaningfully and, and, and truly reduce people's exposure to a set of toxic chemicals and two of the worst sets actually yeah. that are prevalent in consumer products. That's right. And, and, you know, one of the things is it's not just about protecting consumers in the United States. It's about protecting workers in other countries as well that have to right. put these mixtures into these products, right? Um, most of the things, I, I will say most of them, I couldn't confirm that, but I would probably, I probably can say most of the products in a dollar store are imported. And, you know, if we reduce the harm for people here, we should reduce the harm for people that are actually putting these products together as well. Okay, and so then Just Transition Alliance mm -hmm. so, is also happening. So you're wearing multiple hats. Multiple hats. I remember when I got approached to, to work on the Campaign for Healthier Solutions, somebody at some point said, hey, you know, um, we'd like to offer you a part-time consulting gig to coordinate this national campaign <laughs> I kind of smile back and say wow you know it, they did say part time but it, <laughs> it doesn't pan out to be like that it's never so, yeah, part time my other my other hat is um, executive to the uh, director to the Just Transition Alliance the Just Transition Alliance is an alliance between um, labor primarily labor locals in um, the energy sector, you know, uh, refineries and, and such, and environmental justice organizations throughout the, the United States primarily, and some in Mexico, and, and we started out early on with the uh, Canadian energy and paper workers as well. The goal there is to figure out how we can get ahead of the curve in regards to transitioning workers out of dangerous polluting, non-sustainable work and into good, clean and sustainable processes, right? So the reason why we, we focused on workers as well is because whether people like it or not, we use workers as kind of our canaries in the coal mine. Why? because our communities are right up against the fence line of these massive industries. So what happens to a worker inside that plant will for sure happen to the community outside that plant because the chain link fence is not going to protect us. So it's imperative that workers' health and safety and the environment that workers work in be as safe and as clean and as healthy as possible because if they're safe, clean and healthy, it, it uh, also reciprocates to uh, the community right next door. Right. Mm -hmm. So Just Transition Alliance was created or came together in 1997, is that yeah. right? Yeah. What led to its creation? And Yeah, so, you know, um, we had formed, I think, a more structured environmental justice movement coming out of the First People of Color Summit in 1991. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we had to take on the North American Free Trade Agreement and, you know, an incinerator, toxic waste dump, you know, uh, you know, industrial discharges, a bunch of things that kept us really, really busy. And we became very, very good at, you know, direct action and 
taken it to some of those industries, but what was lacking was the actual intervention with workers inside some of these plants, right? And mm -hmm. we always had the intention of coming together with workers, but we never kind of realized that fact until in about 1995-96, the Oil Chemical and Atomic Workers Union, which was a left-of-center union, um, you know, with 90,000 workers, that produced everything from a BB to a nuclear weapon and 90,000 chemicals in between, right? right. Um, said, uh, you know, what we do and what we produce, some of those things probably don't belong on the face of the planet, okay? This, this is, is what a, the OCA folks said? This is a forward-thinking un union, right? Yeah. They don't belong on the face of the planet, but as we move forward to phase out things that don't belong. How can we guarantee a just transition for those workers on the, on, you know, the production line, of the rank and file workers, the union workers and such? So they, they approached mainstream greens at first, and I think they didn't have any luck. And then somebody told them, hey, you know, there's this environmental justice movement, uh, you know, and it kind of seems that you guys are probably natural allies on this one. And uh, so they invited us to Chicago. Uh, we went and met with Robert Wages, who was the president of OCW, and a lot of their leadership, along with the environmental justice leadership. And lo and behold, we start a relationship around um, worker and environmental justice. So in 1997, the Just Transition Alliance was formed. Um, we took on five programs or five sites where uh, the way we chose sites were that there either had to be some kind of collective bargaining contract issue, a health and safety issue, uh, an environmental justice community issue. And if those things merged, then we would focus on those sites. So that's how, how we chose our first five sites. Do you remember where where those five sites oh, yeah. were off the top I, of your head? I, I, I was <laughs> the organizer at all five sites. So, so the first one was Ponca City, Oklahoma, um, then Rillito, Arizona. Ponca City, Oklahoma was around Carbon Black, the Carbon Black plant, which was a lockout and an environmental justice concern to the Ponca tribe. And then Rillito, Arizona was a cement company called Arizona Portland Cement that literally was a cement plant that had a bunch of violations, was using hazardous materials at one point to burn in the cement kilns. And then uh, there was a lot of health implications to the community next door from particulate matter to a bunch of other things that were happening. And Rillito, um, which was really interesting, is in Arizona, uh, a primarily African-American community, I would say. And a lot of those folks living in that community, there was, it was Latino, Mexican, uh, African-American community. But a lot of the African-American people came from their parents or grandparents got there from their sharecroppers that moved towards Arizona on the way west or the way to California or 
but right. decided to stay in Rito, Arizona. There's a very famous person that was actually born in Rito. That was Earl Campbell that used to be the running back for the Houston Oilers. Sure. He yeah. comes out of Rito, Arizona, so all the streets wow. are Earl Campbell Way, Earl Campbell <laughs> Avenue. Or... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And his family's still there. Um, so, oh, wow. you know, um, that was the second site. And I'm, I'm not telling them in order. I'm not saying yeah. them in order, but... Um, and then we focused on San Antonio, Texas with the Kelly Air Force Base. That was BRAC. Um, I don't know if you remember, but they used to use this, um, the, the, what was it called? The bracket or bracketed to... Base realignment and closure. Mm-hmm. Or, or yeah. ba- I'm not sure I've got that all right, yeah. but... Yeah, so it was, something it was like destined to be bracking. closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for years, that site had been the air force base a major air force base um you know a lot of the war on the pacific a lot of you know pilots were trained um there as well and it was a major base but there was this very nasty um habit that they had and that was to jettison fuel right before landing and when they jettison fuel they jettison fuel right uh, right above and over a community of um, San Antonio, the people of color primarily, a community adjacent to the base. So there was a lot of problems with lupus, there was a lot of problems with cancer, there was like, I mean, there was a whole series of, of health concerns. Yeah. So when it got bracketed for closure, they wanted to transform it into the NAFTA hub so that um, materials and could either be shipped there by train or by plane and then distributed throughout the United States um, from Mexico, primarily. So that was one of our sites. You know, there was a lot of concern. You know, I remember I used this term yesterday, you know, part of the response back to the community when they had open ponds, leach ponds with fuel that had been leaking for years and years and years. They, they opened them up and they said, oh, you know, we'll, we'll leave this to natural attenuation. That means that it'll evaporate at some point, you know, and we'll plant some trees around it so it's not a, a visual nuisance, um, right. that kind of stuff. So that's the way that the federal government, in this case, the, the, the armed services thought that they would deal with this issue. Instead of cleaning up the whole situation, you know, most everybody in that community is on well water, so you can imagine the implications that it had. And then we also worked on in Richmond, California, you know, uh, around some of the refineries. We helped to pull together organizations to come up with the uh, uh, industrial safety ordinance in Richmond, was, which was, I think, one of the first ones in the nation. I'm not too sure, but it's still a model for industrial safety ordinances. And many organizations like, you know, Asian Pacific Environmental Network, Communities for a Better Environment, which was I was on the board of, yeah. and many other organizations came together with labor to push for, um, you know, this industrial safety ordinance. Um, and we had a little bit of a role in that in regards to bringing folks together. and making sure that when things stalled, we could tap on the shoulders of workers and others to, you know, reinitiate these conversations. And I know there's another one. <laughs> it's uh, 
McIntosh, Alabama. Uh, McIntosh, Alabama was an interesting site when we first went to McIntosh, Alabama. We met with an organization there. We were there on behalf of an invitation from the Southern Organizing Committee. And we met with an organization there in McIntosh, primarily of people that were like in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. I remember there's like an older generation of folk. And most of them had built the chemical plant that was of concern, um, you know, 40, 30, 40 years before. And yeah. they knew where all the skeletons were buried. Um, you know, so there was literally a situation in McIntosh, Alabama, where the community was just devastated by the, the, the plant. I don't even remember what the what the chemical plant was, but they also made mercury there. Mm-hmm. And the reason I remember the mercury was because we took a stroll with a with the with the guy, you know, older African American guy that said, Hey, you know, I wanna show you something and he took us to this tree line and with his cane he he moved some leaves and you could see mercury. Really? Just on the ground? On the ground. Like seeping in the ground? Seeping in the ground. And to me, that was like shocking. I was like, what the heck? You know, these folks are having to live with this kind of situation. So we met with the workers as well at the plant and stuff like that. And and uh, it was uh, very, very interesting uh, just to be part of that. I think it was, it was, it was enormously interesting. Uh, gratifying and and at the same time challenging Uh, because some of the workers kind of said no let's not pay too much attention to this because they're going to close down the plant we're going to do this and the community said no we want to clean up right we want to clean up so i think ultimately they came together and and you know they said okay without closing down the plant how can we get this cleaned up and how can we get the plant to be responsible for these things right so in each of those places, I mean, you kind of already said this, the, it's a, the model is an alliance between the community members yeah. and the, at least some of the workers inside the, the plan or the, the military base. Yeah. It's interesting you asked me that because um, we had to find a common denominator that would bring both the community and the workers together. Right. And Maybe some of your listeners will, will know what I'm talking about, but um, there used to be a man named Marvin Legator at uh, the university out in Houston, one of the universities out in Houston. And he was a, a, a scientist, um, and I think he was a health scientist. And he gave us a, a health survey. The health survey was literally like 340 questions. It had 12 of the biological systems, you know, in the human body and all kinds of things. And it was just an enormous amount of questions, right? And he gave us that and we said, okay, we can probably correlate health issues inside the plant to issues outside the plant. Yeah. So we had community members give um, workers the survey, do the survey. We would pay community members, I think, like $50 um, per survey so that, you know, they would interview the workers. And then we did the same thing for the workers to interview community. We literally 
wanted to build relationship first, right? We had a, a, a mutual cooperation agreement that we had both parties sign, you know. Um, like I said, there was already an issue with the workers, such as collective bargaining or a, a lockout, and then there was an environmental justice issue at the community side of things. So we, we, we did come down to the common denominator being health. So we started advocating for the health of the community and, and those kinds of things. And I don't know if you know about labor, but in some of these plants, in most of these plants, the labor uh, locals have health and safety committees. Yeah. Well, one of the first things that we asked, we prompted <laughs> labor to do, is to have those health and safety committees meetings in the community, not inside the plant. Right. So management got super scared. Like here are workers talking about health issues, not here, but out there. Yeah. And uh, it created a different conversation. It created it was actually very interesting. You know, they had spies. They had people that would report. That's fine. You know, you know, the, what was being said was being said anyways. And they got really nervous. Right. And um in all the sites, I think, you know, we, we were able to settle the labor issue and we were able to come to some agreement on the environmental impact. So health being probably the common denominator. How long a period of time is it that those five original sites, the you know, the issues, the cases are playing out? Is it years? Yeah, it was years. Or? It was years. Um, you know, I think all in all, it took us about five years. We were working probably three simultaneous, and then two others came along later. Yeah, it took it took a while. You know, in Rito, Arizona, you know, we had uh, the the plant was sued, uh, was fined by the U.S. EPA for six hundred thousand dollars. We said, okay, we want as a community, we want the the money, the $600,000 to go into a site environmental project, which would bring in monitoring, which would teach the community how to monitor, use the monitoring equipment. And then the community was then responsible to monitor uh, the offsite consequences and then send the monitoring uh, materials or test materials, things that need to be tested they would mail them to the US EPA or whatever laboratory that was agreed to. But it, I mean, it was everything from teaching community members and workers to read opacity, um, you know, in regards to particulate matter and a bunch of other things, right. you know, that went along with that. It was really a beautiful process. And then, you know, the collective bargaining contract was one as well. So the workers got their contract, they were good. And uh, yeah. Oh, so many questions. I want to keep talking about that, but I actually want to go back further now. Mm -hmm. So that starts JTA. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you call it that. Yeah, <laughs> but, I do. Um, JTA, we do. You know, start, starts in 1997. Mm -hmm. You're at the People's, some People of Color Summit in 1991, which is sort of the first coming together, yeah. right? Yeah. And creating the environmental justice principles. Mm -hmm. Tell me about what got you... Well, let's go back to the very beginning. So <laughs> tell me about where you were born in your childhood. So I was and born then we'll in, come up to... Yeah. Yeah. I was born in Mexico. My parents um, were farm workers here in California, here actually in San Diego County. But my mother was pregnant while she was in the fields. Uh, 
And it's interesting, I just spoke about this not too long ago. A friend of mine passed away, and so I went back and all my friends from when we grew up in the, in the field, we were there and um, we were talking about this. And I said, do you know that most of us were born in Mexico, even though we could have been born in the United States, our parents were already working here. And, you know, we started like looking at each other and we said, yeah, you know, that's kind of weird. I said, no, it's not weird. I said, um, people didn't have the resources to have children be born here. You know, this mm. was at a time when social services were really not um, something that folks could rely on, especially immigrants. Then the language barrier, right? Um, you know, if there was complications or anything, you'd rather be uh, having, you know, whatever procedure needed to be done in birth with somebody that speaks your language and, right. you know, that kind of stuff. So from my grammar school, junior high school and high school, probably 95% of the people that I grew up with were born in Mexico or in Tijuana, right across the border. I mean, they didn't right. go far. Um, right. um, I grew up with my parents. I sometimes say I helped them in the fields, but it was mostly getting in the way. But I did have my, 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 my hustles within the field, right? I would, uh, I think I would charge three cents or two and three cents. No, whatever, a nickel and a half. So no, two and a half cents to carry the bags of whatever they were picking. It was in this case, it was avocados. I would yeah. carry a bag to the end of the row and put it in a big pile so that they didn't have to take time out to go and do that. And I right. would charge them two and a half cents for that. Um, so I Charging would, your parents? Everyone. It wasn't or just everyone. my parents. Oh, okay. you know, my parents were there, but anybody that wanted yeah. my services could have got my services um yeah um so, oh go ahead and then you know as i was younger that was you know in my maybe 10 years old 11 12 years old but younger i remember that you know and and this is where i think it kind of i i think back a lot in regards to what i do now um mm -hmm. my father used to drive a tractor with a five gallon a 500 gallon trailer a, a trailer with 500 gallon container on it and would spray the fields with pesticides and i would sit on the top of that 500 gallon container because that was my daycare and you know i would just ride along <laughs> right um yeah we had it's probably fun riding with your dad yeah. on that He's pulling the tractor, you know, and I jump off and run up ahead or something. I mean, you know, goofing around. Um, yeah. But I say that because we used to have a different understanding of agrochemicals. My parents never called them poisons. My never parents never called them chemicals. My parents always called them medicines because they made plants survive right mm -hmm. be it pests um, and they made yields larger right so for them in their mind it was medicine so you know when my father would ask for a pesticide that he would then put into that 500 gallon and then mix it with water he would say correle traeme la medicina run and get me the medicine he wouldn't say run and get me the poison he wouldn't say run and get me the pesticide 
right. they bring me the medicine. So our relationship to that was a little bit different than, you know, when I grew up and I found out that it was not necessarily medicine. It was contrary. <laughs> it was a poison that, um, yeah. you know, if you get exposed too much to these um, poisons, then you are going to need some kind of medicine to make you well again, but it's not going to be that. Um, so that was kind of a relationship that I had moving, kind of growing up to pesticides. And then, you know, I was so in what college. Year, what year was that around Ooh, that you were you're gonna date at the, in, in the avocado? I won't, I'll cut this part out. No, 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 it was in the 60s, uh, middle 60s. Okay. I mean, yeah. you know. I, I think I, we're around the same age. I, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some levity around some of this stuff. Um, in, I remember, I think I was five years old when there was a moon landing uh-huh. <laughs> and we're the same age yeah so then uh, my parents as farm workers would sit down with other farm workers and dialogue whether it really happened or not oh yeah right and my father would say oh these guys they're just trying to mess with you you know the, these guys aren't going to the moon that structure behind the the person in the video, I've been yeah. through there. I've crossed the border through there. It's in Arizona, he would say. And, you know, they're not going to fool me. <laughs> and they shouldn't be fooling you. <laughs> so those are some of the conversations that I thought, I think, up back on. And I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. There were already yeah. um, conspiracy theories back then. Faking the moon landing. Yeah, it's a classic. The moon landing. I mean, my father was dead set that he knew the structure of rocks behind them and that he had crossed oh, through there. Yeah. And, you know, this was my father was here in the United States since the 40s. I was oh, born wow. in the 60s and he first crossed through Arizona. We know that, you know, he would claim that he knew that rock structure. So. <laughs> was he working in the fields from the 40s through the yeah, 60s yeah, yeah. that's a long time he was part of the bracero program which was during the second world war you know when everybody went off to fight they needed somebody to grow crops in the united states so the u.s actually very intentionally went into mexico and recruited people to come work in the fields um, there's still a lot of debate around you know the Bracero program because a lot of them worked for many years here in the United States and stayed after the war, but were never really paid. Um, like uh, uh, most of them contributed to Social Security, uh, most of them contributed to income taxes and things like that uh, because it was a federal program, <laughs> Bracero program, right? Right. So they contributed to all these services or you know, institutions, but they never benefited from them. And I think there's a big move now within the campesino, within the farm worker movement, to remunerate the families of those uh, workers from the 40s. Do you recall ever, you know, any pesticide drift or incidents <laughs> like that of people getting sick? So I'll tell you what, what I do recall. I don't remember pesticide drift. I could smell it. I uh-huh. could smell it on many occasions. And, you know, once, if, if you know routes of exposure stuff that I studied with, actually, with the 
with the OCAW, I went to the oil school. They sent me to the oil school for a bit just to learn about, you know, different um, things and exposures and health and safety and stuff. If you smell it, you're in it, right? So I remember smelling pesticides. I also remember a practice that not until, I think it's just recently that they did away with it, probably within the last 10 years, which was to take an actual human, give them a, a white or a, an orange or a red overall, uh, paper overall, and actually have them stand on certain areas of a field. And a crop duster uses that human as a target to spray. So comes down right up on the human, starts spraying, then that human moves 20, 30 feet or whatever it is, the crop duster goes around and uses that human again to spray. That was a common practice. So many of those people, <laughs> again, you know, they're immigrants who, if they worked, you know, in, in the United States, their ultimate goal was to go back to Mexico and retire mm -hmm. or go back to Mexico and get health uh, care <laughs> because yeah. you know it, it was not available here so again it was like there's a whole subset of people that we will never know their their final outcome in regards to their exposures here in the united states right mm -hmm. so did your dad meet your mom here yeah in, I mean, here in the u.s is what i mean I think they met in calexico california which is not too far from here it's about a two-hour drive down in the Imperial yeah. Valley. And my mom shares this, well, my dad would share a story that they were so poor as farm workers that they used to walk the fields that had been recently picked and pick up onions and other things that the machines or the people would leave behind and that's what they would eat. And my mother would always roll her eyes. Like, like, like come on. <laughs> but uh, that's where they met um, out here. In, in the fields, yeah. And do you have siblings? Yeah, well, everybody in my family's passed away. My mother, my father, I had two other brothers, and they've all passed away. Mm. I'm the last one of my family um, that came, the first generation here. I have daughters now, you know, um, mm -hmm. and stepsons and, and that, but um, from my original squad, I'm the only one left, yeah. Okay, so you went to um, you went to high school mm -hmm. in San Diego. Mm -hmm. Actually, no, up in northern San Diego County, where this community, farm worker community. Another thing I should share with you was that um, when we lived in a ranch, it was a 500-acre ranch. My father took care of the ranch, made uh, an Italian family by the last name of Montalvano very rich. They had 500 acres of avocados, and, um, you know, uh, I think... My father's uh, monthly salary was $117 a month. And, you know, the Montalbanos were reaping in hundreds of thousands of dollars in regards to the crops, right? But um, that's part of the, 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 that story of immigrants, no? So, actually, wait, did your, did your parents get, were they part of the United Farm Workers? No. Or did they, they never? No, they never. Got they heard about it, um, but... Um, they never joined. The, the United Farm Workers primarily were um, a grape in the grape yeah. fields and then later yeah. in the strawberries and that kind of stuff. But um, 
not in the avocado fields or onions or anything like that or melons right. yeah, uh-huh. and that kind of stuff other crops so it was primarily grapes so i want to mention that because when my father left his job at the ranch because of a disagreement that he had with anthony montalvano who was the anthony senior we went to live in a trailer park or no sorry yeah in a trailer park and there was a, some houses close by and there was a guy that used to fix tvs i remember this because he had a tv repair place he was, uh, an anglo guy a white guy that used to fix tvs and whatever our tv because it was all junky would break down we would take our tv and take it to this guy he would never talk to us he would just take the tv and you know blah blah give give us a bill for whatever it costs but he would never talk to us well that guy was tom metzger he was the grand dragon of the kkk and oh, yeah. and um the metzgers yeah. yeah john metzger went to school with me he went to high school with me you know one time I will, you know, and I'm deviating a little bit about the environmental, but it's all part of our environment. That's okay. Yeah, sure. Um, Tom was coming out of the local Safeway with the uh, store in the town of Fallbrook. And he had some groceries, and a friend of mine, we were waiting to go to the movies, and um, um, we were about 14 years old. A friend of mine, Alfredo Martinez, who's passed away, said to him, Hey, Tom. And Tom turned around and he goes, um, Would you kill us? I, I would you like kill us and literally you know there's like six seven 14 to 18 year old teenagers waiting for his response waiting for the movies as well um and he looked at us and he goes nah he goes i wouldn't alfredo i wouldn't kill you guys i mean what's what's why would i do that he says you know i know your parents they're hard-working people and then Alfredo says, but aren't you like associated with that organization that kills black people is what, you know, that was our mental understanding of the Klan. And we didn't know he was in the Klan until we saw him at a rally, like far away towards the beach. We were on the way to the beach on the bus and somebody said, hey, isn't that your neighbor? And we said, holy cow, it is. Um, So his deal was that um, he said, no, you know, you guys are hardworking people, blah, 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 blah. He says, look, just to get it straight between us, he says, um, I just don't like to mix our races. So he only had John as a son, and so there was no gonna, not going to be any mixture of race there. And then he said, and don't like to mix races, and I don't like people being on like social welfare and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what he said. So none of us, I mean, our parents are farm workers. None of us fit that role. Um, so we gave him a pass, and he left. And that's that was our confrontation with Mr. Metzger. Um, later, he and John, I think, called for an assassination of an Ethiopian student up in Seattle. Then we started to see the black sedan with the two guys in the suits in a farm worker community. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they stood out big time, right? And they would be parked outside, just staring at the Metzger house. And uh, later, I think they they um, they associated the well. What I know was associated to John 
was the start of the white Aryan resistance or the skinheads. Right. That was yep. associated to John. There was a, a telephone number. See, these guys didn't discriminate when it came to their messaging because they had little pamphlets that they would put in all our lockers in the high school. It didn't matter who you were. They just put it in every locker. And, like, we get a pamphlet that says, War, white Aryan resistance, call this number, become educated on why we need to be, you know, whatever. And we would call it, you know, and they would, there was a guy in there that was very animated that would say, it's a war, it's a war. It's time to stop the mudslide. The mudslide was us. Yeah, right. Right. I remember that language. Yeah. And um, so we saw them in high school. We saw them out of high school, the skinheads. And they never talked any smack to us, you know, and anything like that. They would go do whatever they do somewhere else. Um, right. We, <laughs> I, I don't want to give you a, a sense that we were pretty good at handling our own community, and if, yep. if push came to shove, they knew that we would defend ourselves. So that was just a little bit of growing up in San Diego County. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> a bit of the cultural history, All right? Okay, so then after high school. Mm-hmm. My brother was a high school teacher, and he brought uh-huh. me to San Diego. And um, I went into high school, finished off, finished up high school in San Diego, and then went into the job court. And I studied early on, which was this brand new technologies, which was solar, solar technology for heating water. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, this is 1983, 84. Um, yeah. So I went and got a certificate in solar installation and then went to San Diego State. Talk about being ahead of your time. Right. I was like, I could, the other day, the water heater broke and I, and I didn't want to throw it away because I told my neighbor, I said, I'm going to make a, a case for it, put some stuff on it and do a passive solar heater. I said, I don't want to throw it away. So yeah, I, I still have that kind of bug. So I moved to San Diego, went to San Diego State University. My goal was to become a doctor. I was in biology and then uh, got involved with um, the anti, yeah, anti-anti-immigrant anti movement. So, you know, yeah. the, from college, there was the mayor here in San Diego. Was, um, pretty racist uh, Roger Hedgecock was his name and you know we had seen um, you know different folks come out of San Diego you know that were pretty racist um, governors and things like that coming out of San Diego and Pete Wilson Pete right? Wilson was like the epitome um, somebody tore down his statue not too long ago they had this program called light up the border where they would all go down there all this you know right. all the, the, the white folk that were anti-immigrants would go down there and let, point their cars towards Mexico and turn on the lights as symbolic gesture to light up the border, right? And I remember one of the things that we used to do as students is we'd show up with aluminum foil and the lights back at them and then they would get really pissed at us and want to pick a fight and then the sheriffs would come and they would say like, if you guys are on the levee showing, you know, putting the lights towards Mexico, they can come on the levee too and shine the lights back in your face. And they would say like, well, you know, this is about the U.S. and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So that's 
kind of where that activism piece started. And then yeah. I got hired to, I, I was working a program at this community organization called Chicano Federation, knowing your rights around communication, you know, because our people were notoriously being um, duped into buying programs for the telephone service that they didn't need. So I was mm. going out to the communities, doing presentations, and then I found one of the board members for that organization said, why don't you apply for this job at the Environmental Health Coalition? It's, uh, and that's where I first started doing environmental justice work. Uh, probably two months into environmental justice, uh, Environmental Health Coalition, I got invited to go to the First People of Color Summit. And that's the start of that. And uh, so oh. my program was um, Toxic Free Neighborhoods, um, working oh. here in San Diego around the toxic TFN, we used to call it Toxic Free Neighborhoods campaign. And then I became um, the director of the Border Justice Campaign. And then we formed the Southwest Network for Environmental and Economic Justice. And then I became the director of the, the Border Campaign for the Southwest Network. And I used to, I used to boast that my, um, my office ran from Brownsville, Texas to San Diego, California, which was about 2,000 miles. I knew where all the toxic waste dumps were, I knew where all the issues were, I knew where all the community groups were, and I spent a lot of time on the road um, doing a bunch of stuff. Yeah. So the Environmental Health Coalition, Coalition. Mm -hmm. tell, tell me, how, how was that started and what, so what, what kind of... That was started by... I mean, that's where, is that where you started to learn organizing? Yeah, uh, environmental organizing, yes. I had done immigrant justice organizing. Right student organizing right. um yeah. we had done organizing at san diego state when cesar chavez would come into town we would organize and bring out five six hundred students from the local universities and, and different campuses even high schools for the marches you know i knew i knew cesar chavez um, when he passed away i uh was one of the persons that had watch over his i was at the feet on the side of the feet over his coffin and on the side of his head was a guy that I later communicated with and helped me make this movie and this is the only copy I have of it it's called the new river but he was Martin Sheen and he literally narrated this movie for us um, but I met him at Cesar's funeral um, oh. and um, he was quite an activist with the UFW back then yeah. Um, so that's my extent of that, you know, the organizing yeah. piece. And then environmental justice, I started doing organizing around the Toxic Creek Neighborhoods campaign, like I said, and then the border justice and fought two incinerators, uh, you know, landmark environmental justice cases, uh, the one in Kettleman City, California, and then the oh, yeah. one in Playas de Tijuana, which was... In, in the community I was from. So we brought both communities together. We defeated both waste management incinerators. And then, uh, you know, back in the day when we had um, really good folks working with us as well, you know, um, one of my longtime friends, and I miss him so much, was Luke Cole. Um, yeah. You know, Luke was a, a wonderful friend of mine, um, you know, and I miss him. He, he definitely, um, you know, it was very tragic what happened to Luke. Yeah. But um, 
yeah, so now <laughs> we're doing climate um, work. Um, we're doing climate and we're also um, doing work around the Green New Deal, um, mm-hmm. the Just 40, and we do correlate chemicals and energy given the fact that chemical production is one of the biggest users of energy in the United States. You know, the correlation between, you know, the, the energy and, and chemicals piece is very, very important. But we take a life cycle approach um, of these mm-hmm. things because we look at everything from extraction of fossil fuels and the implications that it has primarily on indigenous people through pipelines and many other things. And then how that's transported into Houston and then, you know, how Houston is literally one of the epicenters of, of chemical and, 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 and gasoline and, and fuel productions that, you know, um, impacts, com- you know, the community of Manchester and many other communities there in Houston so prominently. And then, you know, how those chemicals then are put into products and then how those products are then sold and then how those products are then uh, discarded and then how it comes right back. All that process is still coming right back into our communities in regards to, you know, waste to energy incineration or toxic waste landfills or toxic waste dumps or even municipal dumps. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there our relationship, our our toxic romance is it goes far beyond what other toxic romances go. What was the the summit like? Summit was. What great. do you remember about it? Um, the summit was great. Um, for the first time, remember, up to then, I was more of uh, uh, immigrant rights, student activist, farm worker justice piece, but I it, uh, environmentalism was very foreign to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the joke that I like to tell people was that when at the Environmental Health Coalition, when I first got a stack of paper, and when I got hired, they were in the process of moving, and I got a big old stack of paper, probably 12 inches high, and Diane Takvorian, who was my boss and a wonderful person that walked me through all the environmental, you know, how to organize and do environmental work, um, she said, yeah, just read read the stack. I don't. We don't have any time right now to like sit with you, but just read some of this and get acquainted. So I would take a paper and I would read it. And I said, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. And then take the back of it and read it. And it wouldn't make sense. And I'd say, like, what the hell's happening? So I would get another piece of paper and I'd say, oh, okay, there it is. So then I would read it and then turn it over and it wouldn't make sense. Well, it was recycled paper, right? <laughs> that was like, I, I, I said, shit, I mean, I said, somebody needs to draw a line through the back of it so that I yeah, don't right. try to think it's just turn it over. And uh, everybody would laugh. So that was like my, my, my first introduction to like an environment, environmental justice. We formed the environmental justice part of it um, once we were hired on. But, um, you know, the other was... So there was local environmental issues in addition to the new yeah. river that they were focused the, on siting or the toxic free neighborhoods campaign dumps. which was the campaign i started working on was working in barrio yeah. logan very famous community out here in san diego it's right under the coordinate bridge that goes into across the bay over to like a you know 
very rich community, white community primarily. But on this side of the bay is all the shipping industry, all the peripheral industry for the shipping industry. The U.S. Navy was the biggest polluter and probably yeah. still is. And the community was the 12th most contaminated community in the United States at that time. So that's what I inherited as an organizer. It was like, here. <laughs> so bunches of community meetings, you know, uh, every day, seven days a week. I think I used to I used to boast about this, but I don't think my family was happy. Um, but uh-huh. I used to say that I think I went like three or four years without, it's like seven days a week. So meetings on Saturday, meetings on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, blah, blah, blah. It was just that intense. And moving forward, um, there's a community plan that was developed. We wanted buffer zones from the heaviest use. Um, we wanted some relocation of the massive amount of plating shops and chemical storage facilities and um, welding gases that were, you know, you know, thousands of, of canisters of welding gases right outside of school, that kind of stuff. Um, you know, again, one of the things that I know that we should take into consideration when we're talking about environmental justice is the fact that more often than not, environmental justice communities are zoned differently. We, you know, in environmental right. justice communities, we have both residential, industrial, or heavy industry right up next to residential and sensitive use. Um, where you don't see that as much in wider middle class or hardly at all in in rich communities, right? If at all. Right. Um, yep. So that was the legacy that we were under with Butter Logan, you know, and we started talking to the businesses and, you know, like I remember talking to this, the owner of this plating shop and, you know, he was mad at us because we were like, th- he was thinking, well, they want to shut us down. Well, you know, there's all kinds of testing that we've done in the soil and there's a lady has a vegetable garden right outside and you know there's hex chrome in the soil and you know all kinds of stuff um yeah you know and he would say but it's not my fault you know the, they gave me a permit here and he's, he was right right and so we went after the planning department here in san diego and we found some really interesting things one was that way back in the 50s, 60s, the African-Americans and Latinos could only buy property in certain parts of the the city. Barrio Logan, Southeast San Diego, African-American, Southeast San Diego, Barrio Logan, uh, Mexican-American, Latinos. And it wasn't until this engineer that was working for General Dynamics, African-American guy, wanted to buy a house closer to his office that he he literally under civil rights legislation you know uh, confronted the city and that was relaxed but it was very intentional put it that way before that yeah very very intentional and you know there was always this whole thing around what i call economic extortion that you know communities our communities when we said hey you know our community is like devastated by all this you know toxic waste and toxic use and toxic storage and blah 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 they would say you know why and the planning department would say well you know we wanted to get jobs closer to you and then so in the community of Barcelona we did a survey I think it was about 770 maybe a little bit more households in that community and we found that only four people worked in those industries four people 
So there went their <laughs> their economic uh, reasoning, you know, their their job reasoning, justification. Their justification. Yeah. So, yeah, that was that was the the life and times of doing that work way back in the day. So you re- so that's where you learned the. I mean, you'd already done organizing, but the environmental kind of a, combining the organizing. Yeah skill that you already yeah. had with you know, it, those issues. It, it finally made sense to me that 55-gallon drums thrown in an alley didn't belong. You know, where before it was, okay, somebody threw that away. But then I started thinking, okay, you know, so I started seeing it more and more and more. And then, you know, what, what really, I think, solidified my work was that the Port of San Diego wanted to bring in some jobs so they reinstated this what they called the 10th avenue terminals which was used many years uh as part of the bumblebee tuna factory you know and a bunch of other Mm -hmm. places that had gone gone by the wayside by the way butter logan's history was that you know it was first kumeyaay people that lived in and around the bay Mm -hmm. and then they got moved to eastward and then the Spaniards came and, you know, moved them out eastern and then Portuguese and then fishing and, and tuna and those kinds of things. So that was the progression. So a lot of the housing in Butter Logan are small bungalows that um, were used by workers in the tuna canning factories. It's it's becoming more and more gentrified. So those bungalows are going by the wayside in the big buildings, you know, the, they're becoming gentrified. So the 10th Avenue Terminals was importing grapes, I think, grapes from Chile. And um, they wanted to bring them into San Diego, put them in the 10th Avenue Terminal warehouse, and then flood the warehouse with methyl bromide, and then vent that. Well, right across the railroad track was Perkins Elementary School. Oh, my God. So we said, no, it's not going to happen. Um, they're going like, why? <laughs> we're going like, because it's a poison and that's a school. Right? So yeah, I, I still remember when I could go on the, on the port lands. <laughs> I can't anymore because security stops me. They, I haven't been in Portland for years, but um, I would go there directly and like peek in there because I wanted to see what this is all about. So we sued the city, no, the port of San Diego for exposure from this facility. And we got, we went in court. And on a Friday, we were celebrating in the office. We were like, hey, everybody, hey, everybody's happy because they're going to offload some grapes but they weren't able to offload them anymore and they weren't able to spray pesticides anymore, in this case, methyl bromide, and it was not going to be vented. And I don't know where they got some kind of a judge from, I don't know what circuit or something, and he overturned it and they went ahead and did it. So then it was on. It was on. It was on. Basically, it was on. So port meetings we'd flood with people, flood with children, the principal, teachers, everybody, boom. You know, this environmental racism, blah, blah, blah. And and, um, we had been given a program from NOAA, 
which was air modeling program. And I was tinkering with it one day, and basically what it was, it was you could put in an air model and make an isopleth of, like if you dropped a 150-pound cylinder of arsine gas, you could see how it would be dispersed using some of the air modeling, right? right? And I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. But it needed data from like a, a source in regards to prevalent winds and you know blah blah blah. So I went. I, I, not a lot of people know this, but I also studied aviation. I was a pilot, a private pilot, for a while. And um, yeah, really. And and Cecil and I, um, we were both private pilots. Yeah. So wow. I went to the flight service station. I said, hey, you know, is there a way that I could figure out how I can get data on on wind direction, 24 hours? Um, they said, yeah, you know, you could come into this website and just attach and you'll see that it'll mirror in whatever program you're using. So we were goofing around with it, right? There's a scientist, um, Joy Williams, I think, um, she's the lead scientist and we were goofing around with it one afternoon. And I said, let's try it hour by hour, right at the 10th Avenue terminals. See how, which yeah. way the wind goes. So. The wind was going towards the school, towards the school, towards the school. And at 3.45 in the morning, for some reason, the wind pattern would change and it would go out into that millionaire community, right? And I said, okay, so we need to come to an agreement. We have a whole new group of people we need to organize. To, we need <laughs> to have an agreement because we're in the process of putting yeah. together agreements with the port. Yep. They had lifted up the smokestack because they said that would safeguard us. You know, they lifted it up to 100 feet. And, you know, they said, oh, that would take the, the methyl bromide over the school. <laughs> like, no. Like, yeah, those kinds of fixes, right? So then they said, okay. So the port can only um, fumigate from 345 to 6 in the morning. And <laughs> they, went, they went for it. And then we went across the bridge. And we went to those big mansions and we said, you know what's happening to you at 3.45 to 6 in the morning? You're being fumigated. What? <laughs> so then the port meeting started getting filled up with these really rich white people with a lot of jewelry and, you know, all kinds of things. And they started saying, like, no, no fumigations, right? Which was... Because we had to organize them as well, and we couldn't we couldn't say don't don't agree to have fumigations, because if they right. do, they're going to put it back on us. It shouldn't be on anybody. Yeah, right. Right. And um, right. So they went to the port, and you know, lo and behold, another interesting factor was that a lot of the women were um, primarily women, were the wives and, and such of admirals that lived in Coronado. Right, because that's the big navy base too, with aircraft carriers, and and they would say, yeah. and um, I guess I can talk about it now, but because it's been more than 15 years, but at the Environmental Health Coalition, we would get checks for um, you know 15, 10,000, 15,000 dollars from personal accounts, with a little sticky on it. Please don't make my name public because the admiral would not appreciate this kind of thing. Right. But right. Yeah, the more and more, organizing, organizing. And then the final thing that happened was we found a methyl bromide, what we called a methyl bromide recovery unit, which 
literally you had to encase the inside of this warehouse and then you could bring pallets in fumigate them this machine would suck the the fumigate back into these things i i forget the what it was called but basically it would re recirculate it or, or recycle it and there was only a five percent loss and that's because it would because a lot of the metal bromide would 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 seep into the pallets and the boxes where the vegetables or fruits uh, came in but uh, most of it would be recycled and so that thing was put on it cost fifty thousand dollars the technology and we thought oh man this is badass because you know it's for the first time our community is not being vented on you know they can keep on doing it but it's recycled blah 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 and i think either dupont or whoever was producing methyl bromide paid the port of san diego 10 million dollars to get rid of the project get rid of the capture they project because they're in the business of selling methyl bromide not having it recycled right, right. <laughs> so they weren't really clear with us you know but we knew that that one of the chemical companies had forced them to so they got rid of it and there went the 10th avenue terminal project the recycling methyl recycling unit was dismantled i don't even know what happened to it yeah <laughs> so i mean i know this is just we're just you know, barely scratching the surface of all the various yeah. campaigns and fights, and I guess you've had wins and losses, yeah, we've right? We've had wins, draws, losses, and draws, and uh -huh. um, some of them we walked away from, saying like, "What happened?" Other ones we like, "Yes," and um, but yeah, along the way, I think you know some of those. I could say that that most of what we set out to do was accomplished. You know, we had a short, medium, long-term goals, and, you know, we went very meticulous in setting up um, everything from power analysis to, um, you know, organizing plans that uh, people understood and had benchmarks and, and checks and balances so people understood, you know, what was happening and if we need to change the strategy here or there you know, how we could shift and best work that strategy in our favor. We've made a lot of um, different connections with people. You know, we've gotten a lot of help during the years. You know, um, I think, you know, we, we're in the process now of pushing for, and this is a little bit off topic, but it's on topic, dollar stores to source fruits and vegetables from local community gardens and NRDC is our partner in that. I think that's really good through the local food solutions project it's called. And right. for us, I think it's not a just not just about coming up with the problem, it's also about coming up with the solutions, right? That that make yeah. some kind of headway. And for us, if we're living in intentionally fruit-deprived areas, so what do we want? Do we want those cans with BPA? Do we want those um, packages of uh, popcorn with B, uh, PFAS chemicals? Or do we want uh, locally sourced, good, fresh produce? That both, that gives these companies, I think, uh, a better position at serving the community 
putting people back to work in the community, reducing their carbon footprint, the reducing their chemical load that they put on people through the other things. So, so for us, it's a win-win. And, you know, we're in the process of trying to put that together and making it work. What's your... Um and we just got through four years of the Trump administration. I don't. I mean, some of your fights, obviously, many of them have to do with things that EPA has permitted or not permitted, or they're not doing the cleanup that they should be, or federal military bases. There's all kinds of a federal connection. But then again, a lot of these fights are somewhat more local, state zoning. So what's your take uh, on sort of how much the federal lineup is affecting things day to day in communities and would you what's your early assessment of the biden administration's you know rhetoric and mm -hmm. actions so far so i don't know um you know when you plan to air this um podcast but um i'll give you a little bit of a, a window of what some of the things we're doing now and the reason why is because some of it might still be under a little bit of wraps but we sued the federal government, in this case the US EPA, for dereliction of duty. And I say we because it's, it was a joint project between environmental justice organizations and NRDC and, and, and such, um, saying that you know they literally were derelict in their duties when it came to communities in regards to ceasing all enforcement during COVID. Oh, and yeah. so we just found that uh, a big study that uh, we've been working to, we're going to bring out, and basically it correlates um, the amount of deaths in communities during that dereliction of duty. That is totally and distinctly correlated by the, to the point that the US EPA failed to enforce environmental regulation. Um, next Wednesday, Thursday, Wednesday or Thursday, I'll be testifying on it on the, on the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council. We come out public with it on the 31st of August, but it's it's quite how should I say this? It's it's quite an indication of what can go wrong and what did go wrong under a very corrupt and, and blatantly racist administration. You know, um, there's a letter from the American uh, Petroleum Institute that asked uh, Trump to look into, you know, uh, having the US EPA in, not enforce environmental regulation during the pandemic. So there's right. specific collusion with the petroleum industry, you know, but that, that, that just and I, and I wanted to mention that because you're, you're mentioning the US EPA and others in the relationship, historic relationship. I think that for yeah. the most part, you know, within the US EPA, most of the people within the US EPA took an oath to protect the environment, health and the environment. Um, and most of them keep it. But there are folks that have historically been blocking environmental justice regulation, environmental justice enforcement that have uh, literally been irresponsible to what they swore to uphold. And I think it's time that we need to shake that, shake that uh, foundation and cut some of these people loose. And what we're going to be asking the Biden administration is just to do that, 
because even though there was dereliction of duty um, during you know those several months that the EPA basically agreed not to enforce environmental re regulation somebody at EPA had to, to agree to it and there wasn't anything raised in the fact you know that was um, contrary to the fact that uh, somebody at EPA saying no we, we have a responsibility to uphold <laughs> and I think it's these some players that are, for many of them are they're not political appointees but they're career yeah, the career, career staff. staff. Yeah, and I think it's time for the it's a huge for there problem. to be, you know, an exodus, a, a force to push some of these people out. You know, I I don't think it's right for any federal agency to have people that don't believe in what the premise of that agency's charter is. And if they don't, please leave because. As right. as we pay taxes, we expect certain things to get done, right? If if you go outside and you ask outside a dollar store and you ask people just that are walking into the dollar store, hey, do you believe that the federal government is dealing with the exposure of chemicals, be it to a product or other things like that? Most people would say yes. Most people would say, yeah, you know, that's what the FDA does, that's what the EPA does, that's what blah blah blah, right? Little do they know <laughs> that the EPA and FDA and everybody else is like light years behind on enforcing yeah. things like that and protecting their health, in essence. So what we've seen with this dereliction of duty is the fact that even though Trump is out of office, the EPA still hasn't um, come up to the standard that it was before uh, Trump. Uh, in regards to enforcement of environmental regulation. It still hasn't. Mm. And that doesn't mean yeah. that the standard of enforcement of environmental regulation was good before Trump. But I think that there needs to be a concerted effort to make sure that that people are protected, and especially the most vulnerable. For me, I've always said that if you deliver environmental justice communities from the environmental impact, society as a whole benefits it's not just our communities, our children, you know, it's everybody. I think it's high time. The other piece with that is I think we're making a call out for all federal agencies to step up, not just the US EPA, because if you remember, you know, during the Trump administration, you had, I think, a brain surgeon in regards uh, that was in charge of HUD. Um, <laughs> and that brain surgeon was uh, problematic let's just say and you know when we talk about environmental justice we talk about where we live where we work where we play where we go to school where we cross the border and you know uh, so our environment isn't just our natural environment it's our built environment it's our you know environment per se so police brutality um, you know the issues with George Floyd and other folks that have been brutalized by police is part of our environment and part of the things that we need to address in order not to have the uh, impact as they do. Jose, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. This is great. And you've done so much amazing work for so many decades. There's always more, more, more work, work to, to be, be done. done. You know. yeah, well, I hope a lot of people listen right. to your podcast and then we get more people working on this. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. Well, uh, we'll continue. We'll do a part two at some time. Very honored. The Toxic Avengers podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg. You can visit our website at ToxicAvengersPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at ToxicAvengerPod. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Toxic Avengers Podcast.